Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farrand, owner of the company Horns of Odin. And just before I jump into the show, I just want to quickly mention our Patreon page because it is how we keep the lights on and how we keep everything going here. And if you can support us on there, it would be much appreciated. It's £3 a month, so that's 10p a day. And what you get is a bonus episode every week. So we sit down with the guests after the show and we do a Q&A where you can ask your questions or you could sit, submit them ahead of time. You also get story time with uh, Jonas Lorenzen. You get access to our Discord channel. There's a bunch of really awesome features over there. So if you can support us, like I say, it does help us keep going. It keeps you run, uh, producing the episodes, uh, at least doing the social media. There's a whole team behind the scenes. So if you can, pop over there and have a look. And if not, a five-star rating, a positive review, wherever you get your podcast would be appreciated as well. Uh, but today we're going to be talking about myth with Jan Kozak. This is your second time here, but the first time actually recording, because last <laughs> time we, we did half an episode and I forgot to hit record, unfortunately. So yeah. we're going to try it again. So thank you for inviting me for the second time. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's it, I guess it's welcome back. Or <laughs> kind yes. of. <laughs> kind of. So, well, welcome slash welcome back. Do you want to just let people know kind of who you are, what you specialize in? Yeah, okay. So um, I'm... Uh, <clears throat> um, I studied Latin and religious studies, and with this, uh, I studied also other old dead languages like uh, ancient Greek, uh, Hebrew, Sanskrit, and Old Norse. And uh, so I spent much more years than usual at, <laughs> at, the, yeah. uh, at, the, at the university, taking more and more courses. And, and so I, I was very much into these old languages. Uh, on the other hand, I studied uh, comparative religion or religious studies, and that was always my passion. And I studied this uh, at the Charles University in Prague. And after my PhD, I went on a postdoc to Bergen in Norway, uh, where I focused on body symbolism in Old Norse mythology. There I spent two years. I organized and co-organized conferences and uh, workshops and stuff. And I, you know, published some, uh, finally also works in English because until then I was, uh, you know, publishing books and articles, but most of them in Czech. So I switched to international <laughs> at that time. And uh, yeah, and from that, uh, that time on, I'm just a, a, a professor in Prague. And uh, my focus is on one hand, uh, Old Norse, like the cultural area of Old Norse mythology, but because of my, uh, let's say, linguistic uh, um um, you know, the, the number of old, mostly Indo-European languages that I know, I also have the ability to, let's say, orient myself a little bit into in various related uh, mythologies and cultures, especially uh, uh, Indian and uh, uh, old um, Italic, let's say, Roman uh, area. Um, and uh, But after I returned from Bergen, I, uh, my whole, you know, the, the, uh, the department was at this time in Prague, uh, changing a little bit the focus of, uh, until then we were all like this, like focused on all dead 
cultures, really doing mythology, polytheism, all this kind of stuff. But at that point, we started to refocusing a little bit on uh, towards contemporary mythology and contemporary quasi religions of various sorts. So I uh, jumped on this wagon a little bit. And uh, as another thing on the side, I started a research group focusing uh, on the research of conspiracy theories as modern mythology using the tools that I know for from comparative religion or the study of mythology for the study of this very uh, contemporary uh, mythological imagination. And yeah, so that's that's basically... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. I, I mean, I look forward to us touching on conspiracy theories. That, that one fascinates me. Uh, how many languages do you know? I mean, uh, actively I speak uh, just Czech and English. I mean, English whatever this is uh <laughs> but uh, but uh passively i can read uh these dead languages that i mentioned so latin greek uh sanskrit uh hebrew and old norse um mostly i mean like simple texts of course on the spot but uh this kind of source text that i also read as a part of my curriculum uh, primary texts from from the original languages. That's usually with commentaries and um, and dictionaries, and you have to check everything. But it's uh, it's the real treasure that I at the end of the rainbow lies the original text, uh, mm -hmm. or, original Sanskrit text, original uh, Greek text, where you it's the closest you get to a photo from the ancient times because. You see the way how the culture thinks, uh, something that you cannot get from textbook or from Wikipedia page. That's that you can only um, only get it from in-depth reading of the original text. That's so. So that's uh, yeah. That that was uh, like I I spent ten years doing this kind of uh, stuff. Very very text focused person. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have two questions. One, firstly, a quick answer maybe. Is it possible to to speak or be fluent in those dead languages? Is it possible for somebody to do that? Not necessarily yourself, but yeah, I was yeah. just curious. Yeah, it, it is uh, possible. There are, for example, uh, people who are doing Latin. Uh, some small percent of these people are really trying to make Latin a living language. Uh, there are uh, all the vocabulary for modern things, machinery, mobile phones, everything exists. Uh, is So you can speak Latin and there are people who are more or less fluent in Latin, but it's a very small number of people. I suppose the same uh, or a very similar thing uh, as Sanskrit is a kind of Latin for, for the Indian subcontinent, there are people that who are able to speak Sanskrit fluently. I haven't ever met one, but uh, I, I know that there are th those kind of people. I don't know about ancient Greek uh, and um, and actually biblical Hebrew is very close to contemporary Hebrew. So I think that, that, that that's not that such a great feat to, to be able to speak mm -hmm. here. Yeah, no, I was, yeah, I was just curious whether it was, it was possible. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so... Uh, when yeah. when you're oh, go on sorry 
No, no, no. I was just uh, last time I gave <laughs> I gave an uh, example of how sound how, for example, a piece of Sanskrit sounds or. Oh yeah, you did. Please, if you if you if you can do that again, that would be uh, brilliant because yeah. Sanskrit is always one that fascinates me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, last time I did one uh, short, um, uh, you know, two two verses. I I I think I try a different two verses this time so that I don't repeat myself and. Um, so this is how it goes. Satyam mata pita jnanam dharmo bhrata daya svasa shantih patni kshama putrach shat ete mama bandhava, which means in translation, uh, truth is my father, no, uh, truth is my mother, knowledge is my father. Satyam mata pita jnanam dharmo bhrata dharma or law is my Bra- brother, Dharmobrata Dayasvasa, uh, compassion is my sister, peace is my uh, wife, and uh, how should I translate it? Uh, yeah, let's say patience is my son. Uh, these are my six relatives. So it's a. I. I mean, I like to to memorize these sayings that somehow illustrate. Um, I don't know something beautiful about uh, the culture. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, the, the and it's also very practical because when you learn um, this simple example, you also learned all the words that. So you don't have to learn them like you know. Uh, in your note, in your notebook, you 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 just learned the, the passage, and now you know how to say mother, father, son, uh, daughter, stuff like that. So that's that's also practical, and mm-hmm. uh, for me, it's a window into a uh, window into a different type of imagination, thinking, culture. Yeah. So, what about the pronunciation? I know we're a little bit off. Off topic. How do you, how do they figure out how the words would sound? Because I guess it's one thing seeing them written, yeah. and then another it's, knowing exactly how yeah, they would yeah, kind of come out. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Um. I think this as Sanskrit has a unbroken tradition and very strict, um, very strict phonological treatises coming with the language. There is not much. Uh, uh, I think there is not much questions about it. I might, I might, like I might personally pronounce something a little bit off, like the ash sounds and stuff like that. But otherwise, it's exactly as I uh, told it. Uh, but uh, of course, some languages like Latin or or uh, Old Norse, they th- there is a, a problem. Like you have. In Latin, you have the reconstructed pronunciation, which is the pronunciation of uh, from the time when it was a spoken language in the Roman Empire. So, for example, we know that uh, the name Caesar was pronounced, in fact, Caesar, or the name Cicero was, in uh, fact, pronounced Cicero, and you know <laughs> these kind of things. But we know just approximately how they were pronounced not exactly so we don't get this kind of like the uh the feel in the mouth the, the thing that you learn when you really hear 
foreign language as a living language so you can you, you know we we all say like the the letter t but in czech it's t in english it's t the same sound but different so so we don't know exactly how in latin for example t t was pronounced was it with a little bit of aspiration or a little bit of tension this 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 type that type this kind of exact sound we cannot uh, get we get only approximate uh, pronunciation and that's also the same with old norse so we can we have reconstructed old norse but we don't know the exact taste of the language that's why for example me when i was learning old norse i consciously learned it with contemporary Icelandic pronunciation, even if it is uh, anachronistic. So some words don't function, for example, some alliteration doesn't work because something, you know, uh, sound age should alliterate with age, but uh, in time, some age sounds shifted, disappeared or whatever. So suddenly the poem doesn't work exactly but i appreciated so much the fact that i can i could learn living sound of language so that that was for me much more important than the exactness uh yeah so, so that there is always this kind of tension either have it in a living form or have it more precise in yeah. in respect with with how how accurate do you think the modern reconstruction of old norses because i i mean if if that's even a thing you can hazard a guess at because i would but for somebody like me and i guess for most people when you have somebody like yourself that would speak old Norse, i'm just kind of like oh that's probably what it must have sounded like because i don't i can't i'm not trained to hear the nuances and the slight differences so yeah. i'd be curious as to how accurate you think it would be i i actually you know, I don't have a professional opinion on this. I believe what uh, uh, the colleagues that pr produce the, pr uh, the yeah. re reconstruction in this sense, I don't have any like special addition to what, what is there. Just the fact that, you know, when you try to, when you, for example, try to learn Icelandic, um, you have an exact point where if you are good enough, Icelanders think that you are from Iceland, because you speak exactly as them. But uh, in the in cases like the reconstructed Latin or the reconstructed Old Norse, every speaker, even if they try as much as they can, in the end, speak a little bit like a Sw Swiss person speaking Old Norse okay. or you know what I mean. So, so in the end, you always get this coloring uh, that comes from your original language. And even if you are a good phon phonologist and good with languages, you never reach some kind of, <laughs> you know. Oh, I yeah, I completely get that because I've been trying to learn a little bit of Norwegian and mm -hmm. I can't even order a coffee. I can't order a cappuccino in <laughs> Norway without them knowing that I'm an English person trying to order a, and it's literally just N cappuccino. It's the same fucking word that we have. And they still know I'm not Norwegian. It's like, yeah. is it that bad? Is my English pronunciation of this? I mean, Norwegian pronunciation of the same word of English that different. And it's, it must just be 
it must be just so different. Um, <laughs> or I just look like a typical English person as well. Yep. Um, yeah, but Norway in this sense is a rather welcoming country because there are so many dialects. Uh, so people are somewhat more like ready to hear something pronounced in a non-standard way. Mm-hmm. I think smaller countries uh, or more, more closed countries, uh, you know, or more, more like unified, like linguistically unified countries like Iceland, uh, there everybody immediately distinguishes somebody who is from there yeah. from somebody who is, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think with, with Norway in particular, because everybody speaks English, particularly like in the, in the yeah. and it's, it's as soon as they realize that you're not Norwegian, yeah. I, it's just easier for them just to flip to English yeah. because they speak English just as well as as you do. So it's yeah, I guess I, I know a few people who will learn who find that not not find it necessarily frustrating, but it's like they try to have they're trying to learn and have that natural conversation. But as soon as they they try, it's so obvious that they're not native Norwegian that whoever yeah. they're speaking to just speaks back in English because it's just easier. And they're like, oh no, I want to try my Norwegian. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, you have to probably pressure it, uh, like because I I also am very shy. I you know first I have to have big. I have to have a mastery of the language because I I you know I that that's a, that's a big problem for me speaking. Uh, also now I'm uh, you know even English that I know so well I still stutter. Uh, when I try to think about stuff. So uh, it's it's a great difficulty. But I have met people, for example, when I was in Norway learning Norwegian, there was a guy, he was, you know, he was speaking not so great, but he was not afraid. He was just, you know, going straight for for the mark. <laughs> not, you know, and that's the right attitude because you straighten the problems later. But, you know, if you, if you won't ever start... Uh, like me <laughs> then that's like it's... me too i'll <laughs> i'll know what i i'll know what i want to ask in my head and i'll be stood in the queue repeating it to myself over and over and over and i'll be like yeah that's you've got it and then as soon as it comes out of my mouth it just <laughs> stutters and is so obviously not natural i'm like oh okay i just fucked that up uh it's every time um all right let's let's jump into the the meat and the bones of the episode i guess which is myth we're going to look at myth but most with a, with a main focus sorry on how we interpret it and how we look at these myths and kind of yeah yeah what so, we hmm. can from them so my basic uh, thesis is uh you know i just really i spent years collecting various interpretations of myths like have some kind of overview of theory of myth. And I, you know, went from the very beginning of the comparative uh, religion, from the natur mythology, where people were like interpreting mythology, like, okay, so this uh, Baldur, he has uh, described as very shiny person with very, uh, you know, white uh, stuff. Uh, so, so he must be the representation of the sun and his killing must be, you know, uh, evening or winter or something. And you have this 
nature mythological interpretation. So it's either the myths are representations of natural cycles or, um, you know, uh, or storms or, uh, you know, astral uh, astral uh, uh, phenomena. And so that's one thing. Then there you, you have uh, myths as representations of rituals. Uh, of basically, you, you know, these were reference, all references to some kind of ritual activity, which is now lost, but we have the mythology that describe it, or you have uh, uh, psychological explanation, um, what Freud and Jung came up with. So these are all some kind of psychic phenomena, which are then projected into the outside world and described, uh, personified and stuff like that. Then you have uh, various anthropologists who were able to find uh, social structures in mythology and uh, uh, ten social tensions represented in mythology. You have uh, various historical interpretations, myths coming from. So, you know, you have the whole enormous field of various interpretations. And when you look at who is coming with what interpretation, you can find that, you know, the, I don't know, anthropologist who is really fascinated with law procedures finds mythology be, to be, uh, can be explained via legal perspective. And somebody who is really fixed on libido and uh, sexuality, of course, finds enormous amount of libido and sexuality as the core of myth. So my... Um, Let's say after this review, what what was for me uh, this kind of point, uh, some kind of fixed result is that mythology is uh, works like a mirror, but special kind of mirror, because uh, all literature works to certain extent like a mirror. Uh, it you know we know that the author is dead. We just project ourselves into what we are reading. But mythology is a special kind of mirror because it, um, as it were, it's it has a shape. It's a certain shape. Uh, it's framed with the uh, notion of sacredness. It's something holy or something you know the the highest truth or something like that. And uh, that means that it encodes really some kind of crucial stuff. And uh, it's it's like multifaceted. So, the, you know, that's, 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 the, that's the trick. So it's a mirror for reflection of some kind of vital importance stuff that we have. And what is interesting that it doesn't mirror only it's not relevant only for the cultures that produced it. A mythology is so, so popular, like the ancient mythology or mythology of indigenous nations is so popular for, you know, Western uh, people because it's encoding not only stuff that's uh, relevant for the local culture, but also fascinating for us. It's not, uh, it's not, there is, of course, cultural element, like it's, you, we have to read it in the perspective of the culture and have the cultural context, but there is something also human in it. Like 
common for all humans and that's uh, uh that's i think what what makes mythology uh, special in a way because if you look at various mythologies around the world after some time you can see that there are repeated motives repeated structures repeated some kind of major themes are there uh all around the world so so that's um, yeah that's my that's the first step <laughs> <laughs> in in what what mythology is and what's what's its meaning okay yeah i think i think last time in the episode that i forgot to record we we started with like a basic what myth is um and kind of what yeah what would what would qualify between a, a myth and just like a, a normal story i guess hmm. yeah so is there is there a difference um yeah i'm trying to think i guess for me if i or maybe if i if i say my definition of a myth you can Okay. Tell me how how close I am or far off. Because I would say a myth would be something that probably has some sort of either supernatural or an element where it's outside of what would be maybe humanly possible or exists in a different world, maybe. Um it would tend to be quite old. I guess, but again, that's maybe because all the myths we look at tend to be from bygone eras. So I, a myth would be something that was old. Um, yeah, again, like would probably like feature some sort of beasts or creatures that, that aren't maybe a mythical, yeah, well, mythological creature. It would be something that, that's not maybe in existence today. Mm. And I was trying to think whether I would class it with religion, but I don't think I would. I think I would... Mm-hmm. I would say in my in my mind it wouldn't necessarily be religious or wouldn't have to be religious. Uh, yeah. How am I, how am I doing? Am I anywhere near what a I, myth is? I think you're, yeah, yeah, you are cover, covering one uh, aspect of what from you know one avenue which is usually used for the definition of myth, and that's the content respect. So myths. You know, usually t- prototypical myths have exactly what you mentioned. Very often, they contain some kind of supernatural, uh, uh, special, you know, miraculous stuff. Um, and but the problem is that some things, like I don't know, folk tales, also contain miraculous creatures and uh, magic and stuff like that. And so we should we we have to do use other means to you know capture what myth is other than just uh, content. Another thing is some myths do not look supernatural at first sight. So, for example, uh, ancient Rome is a good example of this. There is this story of two brothers, uh, Romulus and Remus. One kills the other while building the walls of Rome. It looks like history. It looks like something that could historically happen. You are just founding a new city, two brothers, normal. But if you look at other mythologies, you find everywhere 
two brothers at the beginning, I mean like not 100%, but in many cultures, it is a mythem. It's a mythical motive. Two brothers, uh, Cain, Abel, uh, Yama, Yami, uh, etc. Even on Iceland, you have two brothers uh, who, for the first colonists uh, who come and it looks like history, but I suppose it's not. So otherwise, or history is magical and somehow generates uh, two brothers where one dies and the other lives at the beginning of various cultures. So uh, mythology sometimes looks like history and we cannot then define it by uh, just uh, thinking when, when there are unicorns, it's, it's mythology. Uh, so it has to be something else. Uh, other, you know, I mean, it's a good indicator that there is some mm-hmm. mythical stuff going on if you have supernatural elements but it's not all there is. Uh, one thing which is just uh, uh, the uh, one other aspect you have to take into account is um, the position it has in culture. So if it is deemed sacred, then it should be, then it's a good indicator that it, it's mythology. When it is just, you know, old wife's tale, then it's folk tale, even if uh, the, the content is at first sight indistinguishable from uh, from mythology. Yeah. So I, I call it the... Yeah? No, I was going to say, well, so what would be the big difference between a myth and a folktale? Because again, I, I guess in my mind, I would probably put folktale as a subgenre of uh-huh. myth almost. Yeah, yeah. The usual... Uh, the usual spectrum is like a myth, legend, folk tale, or a fairy tale, or whatever. And then you have some kind of, let's say, history. And even legend is something else than myth, because myth, there is also the aspect that myth uh, is usually, um, while legend takes place in the world more or less as we know it. Uh, myth takes place in this kind of strange time and place which you cannot really uh, you, you cannot you know you, you can't tell wh- when and where did it happen with Balder the, the murderer was it okay Asgard so, so it's somewhere else but other myths like uh, uh, when was it uh, um I don't know some if you take some Greek uh, Greek myth like uh, this kind of uh, you start with the generations of the gods. It's sometime in the past when Cronus uh, and others, you know, there was these progenies and they were killing each other and, and stuff. So is this kind of illud tempus the 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 past time beyond uh, our uh, the, the usual counting? But of course, it's it's you know it's so complicated. Some cultures are really history historizing most of their myths. That's what the uh, Romans did. They didn't have their own mythology. They took over the Greek mythology, and what was original originally their mythology was turned into the earliest period of the history of Rome. So there we find the same material that we find in other Indo-European cultures, but this time it looks like history. 
uh, in India, they had completely different approach to it. They India t- tends to disregard history, so you don't find any proper like uh, time periods in India. Everything is generally around. Nobody was recording the stuff. Everybody was interested in eternal, glorious, monstrous <laughs> happenings of of myths. So th- there are these. St- strong contrast for example jewish culture hebrews uh they were very similar to romans in the in the sense that most of mythology that we have looks like history so i don't know abraham isaac jacob these uh, uh these characters are mythological characters but they look like uh, something that happened in in history mm-hmm. yep what okay. what was what was the question <laughs> <laughs> I've got so many questions flying around my head that I'm trying to get them into some sort of order that I can think to to ask. Because, okay, the one that comes to mind straight away is, particularly in like a religious context, for me, I would say, because I'm, I'm not a particularly religious person, that say Jesus turning water to wine um, hmm. or feeding however, I can't remember the amount of people he fed with a fish. Like to me, yeah. that would be class as a myth. Um, but to some, probably not all Christians, but I surely to probably some Christians, they would say, no, that is a historical fact. So where do you, where do you get that kind of distinguished, distinguished, yeah. distinguished? So, so this, this, of course, yeah, I understand. Yeah, I just, so, so this is, of course, uh, open to debate to a certain extent. If you, if you look at how, you know, the story, the legend about Buddha, there are so many things that happen there, which are very similar to what we find in the uh, New Testament uh, in relation with the legend about Jesus. Uh, I uh, and that these are like this is open to discussion. Of course, when uh, there is this kind of uh, let's say uh, special uh, birth, uh, like God or somebody uh, appears to the uh, to the mother of the savior, uh, then when it, when the child is born, there are people coming bringing gifts and uh, prophesizing stuff. It, it, we find this this in both legends. Uh, then when they are 12 years old, they are very clever in some school or something. Uh, the, the same in both legends. Uh, the, uh, there are similar miracles happening. And uh, the, I don't think, and we can debate, is it influence or is it some kind of pattern that tends to appear there? We find this in mythology actually very often. There, there are authors who just uh, compared, um, I don't know, 20, uh, 30 heroic legends and myths and found that, you know, there are these kind of patterns. The hero is usually son of uh, God, but from a common mother, somebody wants to kill him when he's, uh, you know, young. So the the baby has to be uh, transferred somewhere 
usually on water. Um, then, you know, the hero returns back into the original country, then confronts somebody, uh, wins a battle, kills a dragon or something, becomes a king, but then the look somehow uh, turns away from him, he's cursed or has to uh, uh, run away, and then he dies, usually on the top of a hill, under uh, very special circumstances, his body is not found afterwards, blah, blah, blah. So there, there is this pattern, and uh, the, the famous uh, mythologist of the first half of um, um, the 20th century, uh, Lord Raglan, who just collected these stories, he came up with this 21 uh, features that these heroic myths have, and he gave uh, a Raglan score to various heroes. So, high, 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 how high the score is? The highest score has Oedipus, who has all twenty-one features, and Jesus has like seventeen or something, um, and uh, you know uh, Siegfried and uh, Gilgamesh and all these kind of heroes can be somehow put uh, here or there in the pattern, and it's. We can discuss how it comes. I myself think it's a combination of two things. One is uh, really what works as a story, what affects us on some kind of cognitive level, where we, when we are identified and identifying ourselves with the hero, you know what what works across generations, across cultures tends to start stabilize around this pattern. But also most of these heroes are collected from this area, from India to Ireland, uh, Iceland. Uh, so these cultures were in contact. So it's possible that uh, some, of the, some of the stories were from the same source. Mm -hmm. Okay, this has really got me thinking now, because, which could be quite dangerous, I guess, because I think... <laughs> um, I've never really thought of it like this, but how you have Greek and, you know, Greek, Roman, Nordic myths. Mm. I You very clearly think of them as a myth. But then when I think of, say, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, like I, I don't automatically associate like myth to that. Like when I think yeah. about it, I would say like, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's myth. But you kind of don't have... With them, maybe because they're still living religions, yeah. you kind yeah. of disassociate. And then when you were when you just kind of put Jesus in this list of heroes, I was like, <laughs> "Wait, what, wait a minute! Like Jesus is the same kind of thing as Sig yes. Sigurd?" And like, it felt very <laughs> unusual even to me. And I'm not, I'm not Christian. It felt kind of like an odd thing to do, and yes. that kind of got me thinking that when you really strip back emotions and feelings from it, um. Mm -hmm. You know, if you are atheist or agnostic and you don't believe in these religions, then they kind of are just myths. Yes. And uh, yes, exactly. And that's the trick that uh, it's like, you know, the same problem as um, terrorists versus freedom fighters. Um, so the, the same people, but you have two names for them if you, you are for them or against them. Okay, so... Yeah. Uh, uh, so uh, this, uh, that's a common, actually, a common knowledge among the people who study mythology that there, that it is not a neutral term, because uh, absolutely not. So only other peoples have mythology, not us. 
Okay, so of course, when we are uh, Christians, we don't have mythology, they have mythology. So it's, uh, of course, Christianity has a core myth, that the myth is somehow reactualized at every uh, mass. Uh, and, you know, so, so of course, it's a religion like any other. So it has mythology and it has ritual. Uh, just, you know, we have to be, in this sense, we have to be, um, uh, you know, not to give uh, special treatment. Uh, if uh, Australian aborigin Aborigines have myth and ritual, then, you know, it would be colonial to just exempt Christianity or, or Islam from uh, from this and think about them in in other ways. So, so yeah. Yeah, it's. I love it when things make me just think. Think of if something that's kind of obvious and it's, it's very, it's there, but I've just never really thought about it before. And I like it when, when that happens. Uh, so, I guess that means when if we're talking about interpretation of myth, hmm. I guess then would the peoples at the time recognize these as myths? So if it was the peoples, or you know. Scandinavians in the Viking yeah. Age or Romans yeah. when the in the the Roman era is that right? Yeah, the, yeah, in yeah, classical, would, would they, yeah, yeah, would they be classed as myth then, or would it just be? It does it just kind of become myth once yeah. it's kind of collapsed and and is not popular anymore? I guess maybe. Good, good question. So, um. The problem is that, you know, when today you say myths and facts about, I don't know what, uh, getting, uh, you know, uh, exercise or something or right, what food do you, yeah, myths and facts about food, okay, so we use the word myth uh, in everyday speech and, and, you know, the newspapers and stuff, they use it in the sense of lies or um, mm. incorrect information. And um, so so uh, if you ask uh, ancient Roman or ancient or medieval pre-Christian uh, inhabitants of Scandinavia, do you believe in lies, <laughs> they will, of course, you know, it, the, the term itself is manipulative and it's un, it's useless if, and it's problematic. So we scholars have, have to always return ourselves to, by the word myth, we don't mean false information. We mean sacred stories and Everybody has sacred stories. I don't know. The America, American culture has the American dream. That's their core myth. And it's a myth. Okay. So, so every culture has sacred story in their center or sacred stories. Some of them are better formulated and explicit. Some of them are implicit, but they are sacred. If you, if you, you live your life according to them, you, uh, if somebody says something against them, you want to, you know, be <laughs> bad and <laughs> be, mm -hmm. be, you know, if, if kind of, you know, if, 
So, so there are these strong images, strong values, and these are myths, and it doesn't mean that they are wrong or false or something. They are just sacred stories. So uh, if we uh, asked somebody from the, I don't know, uh, antiquity, if they believed in their sacred stories, they would probably say, yeah, of course, sacred stories, fine. And, but we would have to then talk about what does it, what means to believe in something? Because again, Christianity did some, um, uh, uh, changed the meaning of, no, changed, created a new type of relationship to sacred stories. In the past, in the cultures other than, let's say, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, uh, the relationship to sacred stories was not believing in them, was just telling them and just thinking they are important and just, uh, you know, uh, they are connected to the gods we worship, so they are important. It's not belief in the sense of literal belief, whether, I don't know, uh, Odin literally did this or that, it was like, this is a good, strong, powerful story. It makes sense. It's wonderful. Let's tell it. Uh, so, so the notion of belief is also somewhat uh, different. It, I don't know. It, 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 it's a very complicated development of this notion. I think it's somehow connected also to legal stuff because it's based on, I don't know. So, so Christianity came up with credo, with the idea of, you you know you have this list of things that you have to say you believe in them and that's the that's somehow the belief um and that's very innovative that's a new thing that the other cultures didn't have uh, this kind of um relationship to their sacred stories mm -hmm. so is in a sense it's, i guess with like like you say with with christianity well, it'd be probably the three main Abrahamic faiths. It's very, you have to, you have to pray maybe at a certain times or you have to almost like yeah. show your loyalty, I guess. It's you have to, to, yeah, but I, was, I was maybe too harsh with the other two. I think the, uh, for example, Judaism is quite, you know, it's it's still orthopractic religion. So it's important if you are part of the community, if you participate in the rituals, you know, according to what kind of strand of Judaism. But if you do the stuff, then what exactly you believe is not that important. So many cultures are like that. It's important to participate. It's important to do the rituals, to be with the community. Um, and to tell the stories, but the link, like, and, but do you really believe it? In what exact sense does this, uh, you know, uh, work? This is not so important. And Judaism is, in a way, also like this kind of older tradition in this respect. But Christianity brought Christianity somehow born out of the uh, the Hebrew tradition, which really saw their mythology in history and uh, the Greek 
and Roman legal and philosophical tradition somehow combined into this conception where concept where where belief has to be this kind of um you know you have to profess um uh, some specific points where uh, yeah where you literally believe in them and do not so so kind of if if christianity is very almost strict and it's like this uh these are the the bullet points you have to follow these and you have to kind of live your life this way to then achieve heaven i guess is the is the idea versus maybe the older religions which would be kind of these are these are a few little things that not necessarily you have to take but these are kind of like things that are are there are, are true and you kind of have to do this ritual for for this but then the the rest you can kind of make up yourself and and yeah. it's not really a question of 100% do you 100% believe in this it's kind of mm-hmm. these things we yeah, do exactly. and you tick these little these boxes so it's a little looser rather than that strict format of yeah. you have to yeah do this 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 and this yeah so so that, so and you can see that the question did the pre-christian scandinavians believe their myths is problematic because the word myth is problematic and the word belief is problematic okay. uh, yeah so so that's why it's it's difficult to answer it with either yes or no uh yeah so so yeah no it's it's fair enough um these things are rarely ever simple so okay so if we if we change direction and instead of looking at like what the myth is what people believed and then just looked at how we kind of interpret from a modern perspective maybe interpret myth looking back because you mentioned earlier about how the the romans took greek mythology and almost embedded embedded it into culture and kind of i guess blurred the lines between what myth was and what reality was am i right in in, in how i took that kind of they they made it as if it was real so uh I think that what Romans did uh, were, were two things. First, they um, they brought with them their own ancient stories, and these stories they at some point because they were very much political uh, creatures and they were very much uh, concerned with history and practical matters. They just put this mythical material in the far past to the time when the Rome was founded. So what that material that in other cultures is in like uh, told in the mythological way. In Rome, it's told as their prehistory or, or ancient history of Rome. And at the same time, uh, or as the Rome was growing, they were in contact with the Etruscans to the north, with the Greeks to the south. And from there, they, of course, because they were very receptive, they took over many, many mythological stories. And these were still in the mythological form. So, in, for example, in the famous uh, uh, Metamorphoses, the, the book, the po- poem by Ovidius, 
where you find all the famous Greek myths. Uh, Romans knew them. They just knew them, and they for them they were, uh, yeah, this kind of. I don't know, entertaining, maybe for the learned people, like Ovidius, they were more um, something like, um, you know, um, um, they were taken symbolically mostly, or they were, you know, they were perceived as expressions of human passions. So Aphrodite was a representation of uh, sexuality and love. And these were, so, these were seen maybe a little bit more uh, in this allegorical uh, allegorical way, while the, uh, the the old traditions of the Romans themselves, the, which was also mythology, but was the story about Romulus and Remus and about the first uh, tribes and their battles. This was also mythology, but it was uh, presented as ancient history. And that's also what happened around uh, Europe with the first chronicles of various countries, even like including Czechia from where I'm from, the earliest stories are mythology about women ruling and some, you know, Amazons and stuff like that. Things that uh, were, uh, uh, yeah, this, this kind of projection into the past of something that's actually mythological. So that's, yeah. Does that make it more difficult in, I guess, in contemporary times to be able to differentiate what's a myth and what's not? If if a culture has kind of presented it as their prehistory, hmm. does that make it, unless it has like a, a blaring yeah, dragon yeah. in there, I guess, does it make yeah. it more difficult to then kind of go, okay, well, that's a that's a myth that's not, or is it pretty easy to spot what you're looking for? I guess yeah. sometimes it's. Uh, I mean, there is it's ongoing discussion. I am presenting my opinion. It's not necessarily the uh, opinion of every myth researcher or historian. And uh, I think that, and what's interesting is that, okay, so very far away in the past, uh, you find these stories that are clearly unhistorical, but then as the narrative of Titus Livius book or of the Czech Chronicle I was alluding to, or of, uh, I don't know, Saxo Grammaticus, the historian of the Danes, it also starts with very legendary mythological material, but as it comes closer and closer to present time, it becomes more and more history. And uh, at some point, it's just history. And you, it, there is no clear cut off. Um, it's, uh, it's less and less of a mixture of myth inside. Uh, so, so that's also tricky about it. So you can, uh, you can then argue, but we have, uh, you know, this king, we have also, uh, you know, attested in this source. So it, uh, this king must be historical, but yeah, maybe the name is historical, but the story that, you know, you associate with him or is associated with him might be mythology. That's the case of King Arthur, for example. It's uh, probable that there was some, I don't know, uh, a Roman 
lieutenant or general or somebody Artorius and maybe he had some band of warriors from Scythia or somewhere but all the stories about the magical sword about you know lady of the lake and uh, all this kind of stuff it suddenly grew out of this kind of original uh, uh, maybe you know one interesting person but if you strip What sometimes I find problematic is people trying to, you know, find the real core of, for example, our, uh, the myth of Arthur. And if they strip uh, the, the story of all what is interesting about it, and you get only some boring Roman general <laughs> or somebody uh, who did nothing interesting other than maybe fought some battle some somewhere, uh, then... You know, you strip. You know, so so myth is something that's um, actually uh, it, it. You know, Mircea Eliade actually he um, refers to this uh, interesting case when uh, a, a folklorist, his colleague, was uh, you know collecting stories in um, in Romania, and at some point he uh, uh, find this legend about uh, some kind of uh, hero who was taken away by uh, by uh, some uh, i don't know elves or something and and after some research the this uh, folklorist finds out that the guy that the, the story is old is just 10 years or 12 years old or something like that And that the guy was just somebody who ran away from the military service. And uh, so the story somehow grew around it. And this is how, uh, and, and, and the question is, why? And why it grows in this way? You know, my metaphor for this is that, you know, how you have the um, peril, you know, mother of peril, you know, this, how, how is it called? The clam that produces pearls? Clam, yeah, yeah, okay, clam. yeah. Yeah, so so that's that's culture, and you you know a, a piece of sand or some you know just non nonsensical piece of something falls into it, and it's you know the peril is you know growing around it, and the historical core of myth is this kind of piece of shit uh, that's not interesting and important, and the culture produces wonderful story around it that's there is no relation to you know or, or almost no relation to the original but that's the that's the interesting stuff you know why and why the legend of uh, a king author took this specific form why do why do people need stories about magical swords and uh, you know ladies from the lake and uh, holy grail and stuff like that that's the question what in a human psyche calls you know um, you know attracts uh, these motives and combines it into something that is fascinating and that's that's the that's the <laughs> question that i <laughs> always you know pose uh, to myself and i don't have an answer <laughs> uh, yeah i guess humans are, are complicated uh, creatures so do we get myths that Again, because like you said earlier, like myth in in modern context does mean something that's not true. So I guess when I hear a myth, 
I automatically think that the story is it's just not true. It's just it's just a story. It's an entertaining story. But do we find them where they have like a good chunk of truth in them as well? So it could be quite factual, but also just has yes. maybe like a little myth, little kind of creature or something yes. that makes it a myth. But yes. it's majority, like majority, majority, the majority <laughs> of it's true. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We have these, uh, and uh, but I don't, I can't give you examples from the ancient cultures because they, yeah, I can't. But I have you f- f- from current culture, and that's, uh, for example, political myths or env- environmental myths. So uh, both are based on facts or historical data or scientific data, but the story that is constructed from it is um, uh, full of emotion. And it's a, it has the nature of myth that it, it moves you, it, it uh, calls you for, it, it's just um, motivates you, gives you orientation in the world, stuff like that. I can give you one. Uh, uh, example from my home ca- country, Czech Republic, we had this, you know, uh, every every child r- learns at home uh, at, in, in Czechia this kind of story, like there was in the past the glorious kingdom of Bohemia, where, you know, we had this king who built all the stuff, the castle and the, the, the bridge and all this kind of stuff and the university. And but then came the dark ages when we were under the Austrians and it was horrible and we were, you know, and then there was this revivification and the light started again shining into our and then we had the, you know, finally Czechoslovakia and then this kind of uh, modern period when we can breathe again. So it's not a lie, but it it is so infused with uh, this kind of emotional you know metaphors of light and darkness that that it is a myth it's it it's myth it forms our everyday life every country has some kind of you know narrative that's interpreting historical data in a very biased way and it's um, and so so that's that's social myth and it's it's an example of this. The similar case is the environmental mythology, where which, again, I, you know, I not, you know, take take care. I'm not saying uh, climate change is not real. I'm not saying you know this is not real. Just that the, you know when you look at the story uh, that is behind most of the discussions we have, what we have, what kind of story do we have here? We have a story about original state of harmony. We people, you know, used to be hunters gatherers in harmony with nature. Always, always okay. But then the fall came. And then, you know, we took the apple from the tree of knowledge and we started building stuff and we started, you know, raping Mother Earth with our plows and we started doing all the bad stuff. We, we fell from the original Eden which was the hunter-gatherers. And as the ages progress, the, it, you know, the sin and the human filth is worse and worse. And now we are at the time of the utmost crisis. Now or never. 
you know, in just few years, if we don't mend our ways, the apocalypse is upon us. So that's a mythology. That's clear, pure myth, but also based on scientific data. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it feels like myths can be used to be quite manipulative. Then they can be used to uh, invoke a reaction or an emotion. You can tell them in a certain way to kind of get your narrative across, to get the listeners to feel and think a certain way that you would want them to. And do you think maybe that can be applied to ancient times as well, that the, these ancient yeah. myths would be used in a similar way to kind of yes. whip yes. up the crowd or the people you're telling them to to then think how you want them to think or act a certain way to... Yes. I, I think so completely. I mean, uh, yeah, for example, the Greeks, they uh, there are many myths that uh, were connected. I, you know, for example, the whole project of the Trojan War. So all the Greeks uh, made one giant fleet, and this fleet went to Troy, and there they all fought against this eastern city and so so whenever you again tell you know again sing the iliad uh you again refer to this kind of greek unity against the east of course it's a nice story there are a lot of war you know a lot of battles and it's it's fun but also you name all the ships with the names of the of their leaders and with the names associated with the cities from which they came whenever you sing the Iliad. So it's also a political statement of sorts of Greek unity. Uh, and so so many myths have this kind of political dimensions. Not all, I mean, like if you look, look at the standard at, at most of the old Norse myth that we have, uh, there is not much political message in it other than that it somehow re- reaffirms functions like king, uh, you know, for example, the Reeks, Sula, the uh, the song of, or the, uh, uh, you know, the song of Rig, uh, Rigur tells the story of how the three social strata uh, were created at the beginning by the god Heimdallur, uh, so um, you have the the slaves or the or the thrills, the carls and the jarls, and this is a myth. But at the same time, it has certain, let's say, political message there. Like this, these social strata were created by God. You shouldn't just you know it's nature. It's this is how it is. So yeah. Uh, but but let's not reduce myths to this political side. They are, this is important. In many cases, it fulfills some kind of legitimation strategies. But myth is much more than that. Uh, it's yeah. It's also I I think that myths. I I agree with uh, the the psychological interpretation that I think that because psychology was not there at the time psychology was born in at the end of 19th century or a little bit earlier maybe uh so people were also thinking about how you know how our inside works 
but didn't have tools for it. So they think about uh, the inner works, workings of human psyche via uh, stories that looked like inter interaction of uh, various entities. So I think that uh, what is so interesting about myth that it somehow uh, is a fusion of of these uh, of these layers, and that's what's so powerful about it. Wonderful. Okay, I know we have somewhat limited time today, so I do want to touch on conspiracy theories before we <laughs> wrap up. We have to. We have to go there. It's, yeah, of course. So, how can we put conspiracy theories with myth, or particularly like modern conspiracy theories from mm. myths? Yeah. So if uh, conspiracy theories are, you know, we can divide them into uh, various um, types based on how uh, how um, large scale is the conspiracy theory. So we have small scales con conspiracy theories like the problem around, you know, the Kennedy was he shot by the CIA or somebody else, or that's a small scale that's a event conspiracy theory that's but, a, that's a that, small one i would say that's like one of the most popular conspiracy theories there yes, is yeah of course of course it's it's one of the most famous it has a long tradition there are conspiracy conferences about it discussing it from all mm -hmm. sides and it's it's super productive but uh, and of course it can be uh, some people think about it globally so it's of course uh, connected to everything else but as as a moment, as a single moment, it's uh, you know you can you can speculate about what really happened there and have various more or less uh, uh, let's say uh, imaginative uh, solutions for it. But then there are then there are conspiracy theories which are larger, systemic, and the largest one ones are super conspiracies, and these. Uh, engulf, you know, the, these uh, encapsulate whole Earth and maybe maybe even more. And these are proper mythology. There is, you know, nothing. You know, the, the, the most of them look like uh, they tell a story about. I would this time I would like refer to one of the most famous conspiracy theorists, uh, David Icke. Uh, he has this theory. It's so complex. I probably will uh, simplify it too much, but we don't have that much time to. He he has lectures about it that uh, take like eleven hours. Okay, so 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 <laughs> you, know, you have these like ancient race archons who are also reptilians, and these you know came very long time ago. Uh, they founded a lot of, you know, all the religions refer to them, their visitations. It's a follow-up on uh, Erich von Däniken and his theories about the, you know, ancient aliens. And uh, all this race is can take on human form. They live amongst us and they rule the world. They feed on uh, fear and hate and therefore they you know make the all the news <laughs> because they yeah. are filled with <laughs> hate and fear and they just feed on it and um yeah and then the, of course there, there are these secret cabals where they are meet they rule the world they so so yeah so how was it before this conspiracy theories 
are not the, the, the issue of last 20 years. Uh, they were born in this form, in more or less this form, sometime around the French Revolution. And during the 19th century, we had just the Illuminati and the uh, Freemasons. And then it got more and more complicated. But it feels uh, like there's <laughs> loads of conspiracy theories now. They're, they're really everywhere. <laughs> but uh, what happened at that time, basically 19th century was uh, phasing out of monarchies and phasing out of uh, Christianity, phasing out of God. I, I think Nietzsche was quite explicit about it. He, he proclaimed very fittingly, the God is dead. And I mean, of course, in America, not yet, but in most of Europe, uh, uh, you know, that uh, most people, you know, the education in schools tells you a godless version of uh, reality. And um, so we all share this. And uh, so we lose, we lose. Uh, until then, it was God had has a plan. The whole, the whole thing is that, you know, the world history is God's plan. But if you kill God, nobody has any plan. And then you also take away the kings. Until then, you had clear somebody who is responsible for what's happening. If the king doesn't work, then, you know, let's replace him or something. But there was somebody like God, but small one, who rules the country, and it's a clear list responsible. When you start doing democracy and parliament and all this kind of stuff, it's so, uh, it's so opaque. You don't see the mechanisms. Uh, it's, it's so difficult. It's intransparent. So, uh, and you don't have any God ruling it. So these uh, humans search for compensatory solution for this. Uh, and there, so then naturally conspiracy theories appear because they give you a plan. Just the plan is not, you know, God's plan, but a plan of some evil scheming politicians or worse. And uh, so it's a, it's a, very natural continuation of religion, of mythology, just in new form, in this kind of quasi-political, uh, techno-centric uh, form. But it's just new mythology. We have to read it in this way. We have to so, read it simply. So what about Flat Earth? <laughs> because that's one that fascinates me. Because we can pretty much... Well, we can concretely prove the Earth isn't flat, but yet there is still a huge number of people that believe it yeah. is flat. Now that I feel like that's, that's yeah, uh, that feels different to to what you just explained about how yeah. it's kind of yeah, you know, that's the the, the 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 God's gone and 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 the kings have gone. So you yeah, kind of have this like that the flat earth one almost feels yeah rebellious in a way that people it's, like I feel like even the people that believe it don't really believe it, but they're gonna say they believe it because they want to just rebel against the norm. Like they know the earth's not actually flat, but <laughs> we just want to kind of be the the edge lords of the world who kind of say Yeah, I agree. And I, I think you just 
said what I would say, that uh, myth is not about, um, and that's true also about the conspiracy theories. Uh, myth is not about this kind of, as we discussed, the belief. So you don't have to believe, believe it. Uh, it just, if, you know, we had actually, our students did and research uh, uh, interviews with people who, believed in conspiracy theories. And what came out of these interviews, that absolutely minimum people really believe, believe. They share conspiracy theories. They they just, you know, spread them because they think, because they hate the government and they want to just show them, you know, uh, the finger. And okay. because they think, and because they think, there might be something. It, it feels like true. But uh, if you ask them directly, like, do you think really reptilians? And say, no, I think, you know, but th those bloody reptilians. So it's much more about emotion, expression of emotion, expression of position, opposition to the mainstream or opposition to uh, to the establishment. And if the establishment controls the schools, the media, the blah, 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 all the institutions which spread the standard message, the standard knowledge, those who are frustrated with it uh, have to turn to hyperbole or shouting. Uh, so, so they compensate for their lack of access to the means of power by just producing uh, hyperbolic visions. And I think that's also the way how to treat the conspiracy theorists, not by derision, but by toning down what they are saying and actually asking, so what's behind this? Uh, you say, you know, all these kind of uh, uh, George Soros and uh, Bill Gates, uh, they are sucking children's blood. Uh, yeah, okay, nice. But, you know, if you tone it down, it's actually a social critique. It's a critique of, you know, imbalance of income. And it's not, you know, it's not by accident that the, the richest people are usually those who suck the blood of uh, little children. So, so it's a twisted social critique and we should so we should like translate the conspiracy theories into the language which is proper which is uh some kind of pushback against uh, this or that and i think uh, uh my one of my favorite conspiracy theories is the chemtrails which is not that popular now i think it was like 10 years ago uh, very yeah, in bulk it was, it was big yeah <laughs> it was so, it had it, it was big for a while um I think yeah. the problem is then, though, that sometimes conspiracy theories turn out to be true, and you get the the one the one that turns out to be real, then kind of feeds all the rest of them, um, yeah. because you get somebody like Alex Jones who has almost built a career on having one conspiracy theory be somewhat true. You know, mm -hmm. he had like the the Bohem the Bohemian Grove yeah. video that went popular almost kind of made his career this idea of people in hoods and uh the 
the big I was it the big owl um, yes. that people were like sacrificing a fake body to, and it's a whole kind of very strange thing that he kind of filmed and uncovered, and this conspiracy theory that happened to be real. Yeah. So then yeah. you kind of get that one thing that's real, mm. then you can say ten outlandish things, and people go, "Oh, yeah. but if he was right about that, maybe he's right about." Yeah all yeah. these other ones and it feels like it yeah. almost feeds itself you just kind of throw there's you know the expression you throw enough shit at the wall eventually something will stick mm, it's kind of yeah. it's almost yeah. like that it's like you just throw all these things out there and yeah. if one of them's right then people kind of go oh well if that one's right maybe yes these ones are and they get more and more outrageous as you go along yeah, when I try, you know, when I, because of course, you're correct, there are conspiracy theories that really happened, uh, like, for example, or, or like dark, you know, this kind of secret projects like MK Ultra, which yeah, was okay, this yeah. you know, like experimentation of on humans with, you know, psych psychoactive torture and stuff like that, really creepy stuff that really happened. So if you read stuff like that, of course, you have this kind of doubt in you, like, okay, if they were able to do this, then, you know, what what else can be there? My <laughs> hint that I use for my own sanity when I study this is this uh, saying that I, I heard from somebody who said, uh, you know, uh, if you believe in conspiracy theories, uh, you probably never tried to organize a school trip. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> so, you know, this kind of, um, like, uh, it's so difficult to keep, I mean, like, of course, uh, secret services have their, you know, we all know, thanks to Edward Snowden, they, they are spying on us, stuff like that. But to, you know, to coordinate beyond certain uh, dimension to coordinate among many, many people. It becomes so difficult. Everything, in the end, things spill out. So I am ready but to... Andrew Snowden is a perfect example of that, that eventually yeah. you get somebody <laughs> who goes, oh, no, this is kind of fucked. It's particularly, I think maybe it was much easier to keep it covered 500 years ago. But today, yeah. you know, everything's just digital. It's just, yeah. you can take a photo of something and send it instantly yeah. and it's it's there it's out there it's so much more difficult to keep these mm -hmm. things hidden now but maybe they maybe they have a way who knows <laughs> this is it this is the it's ex that's also the part of conspiracy theories are kind of exciting as well are these kind of like the, yeah that's it that's you it, suck yeah, you exactly. in. fascinating and that's uh, yeah that's that's the other side of the sacred if you if the if it's not sacred in the sense of um like you know you should not touch it then it's fascinating that so that's the case of um uh that of the pop culture mythology there are so many things like uh, the film matrix for example or you know all all this stuff around uh, uh connected to the fantasy and sci science fiction community there are people who are really taking seriously the Jedi stuff. And uh, so, so it's clear that uh, some of these visions are so powerful that you don't just 
watch it again and again. Uh, but also you you somehow start believing it's uh, it's more than that. And uh, so that's a sign of, there is a mythical dimension to it. Again, it's not, I completely believe. It's not, I completely disbelieve. It's somewhere in the middle. It's kind of, wow, this is so powerful. There is something true in it. I don't know what exactly. Mm -hmm. I think... Yeah, I, th- I think the mat- Matrix is a great one because there are a lot of people who, like, oh, really? we live in a we live in a simulation. But I think yeah. it's 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 when they're believable enough, but the ordinary person can't disprove it. So things mm-hmm. I think like with especially like with the flat Earth, it's yeah. it makes complete sense, and you but you have to believe the like the NASA photos or like the, the photography, you have to believe that they're real. Oh. Uh, and most people go, okay, yeah, it makes complete sense. And you can kind of, you can see the curvature of the earth. But if you are, if you believe in the flat earth, it's easy enough for, for them to say to somebody like me, go, okay, we'll prove it. And then you kind of go, yeah. oh fuck, but I, I, I can't prove it without sending you either like a NASA photo or like, or whatever, like global space system, like that photo, or been like, oh yeah, we'll go and look at the curvature of the Earth, and they're like, yeah. oh yeah, but yeah, but you prove it, and it's kind of like, oh, but I, I can't, I have to, <laughs> and and then so then they, they're then able to go, oh yeah, but that could be faked, so mm-hmm. it's it's that kind of where it's believable enough, mm-hmm. but also you can't. Yeah. An ordinary person can't disprove it. They have to relax. And I think that's where you get this kind of like Goldilocks zone for things mm, like yeah. all the simulation. It's like, well, could be real. Like prove it's not real. It's almost, almost, and it kind of goes back to almost like the God situation. It's kind of like, you know, well, prove God's not real. And I think, well, I can't prove it's not. You kind of just have to look yeah. at all the, the things we have and assume, and, you know, and, you get in that kind of position where unless you can prove you kind of, yeah, you get these things that kind of breed. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that also the, if you start, you know, the problem is um, our image of the world is based on trust. I trust the encyclopedias. I trust the, you know, the textbooks. I trust that you know, some scientists did some kind of experiment, somebody else, you know, checked whether it's true, checked the data, checked the numbers, it all works out somehow. And I believe all this um, enormous um, structure. But if you stop believing in this, um, then you, you question everything. So somebody hands you over a photo of uh, from the international space station you said you say okay it's how do, how do i know this is not some kind of ai painting or whatever uh, as technology advances as well you know these <laughs> things it's yeah it's insane because you know with with especially with um with AI and particularly like voice they have like the whole voice manipulation where they can make people say there there is hundreds of hours of me saying all sorts of things. I'm sure if somebody wanted to, they could take yeah. the snippets of my voice and manipulate into saying anything. 
And it, mm. we're kind of in that age where somebody could make it where it's something I actually didn't say, but it's created to be that way. So we're in this time where there is all this doubt yeah. and things can be faked. You kind of have mm. to question everything almost. Yeah. So, but most of us don't do it and just rely on the establishment or mainstream structures and we are more or less okay. But yeah, uh, yeah. but if you don't feel fine either for, I don't know, maybe you didn't, maybe there's always, also there's in every healthy society, there is always people who have some problem with it, even if the society works fine and our societies have many problems. So, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so, so, you know, we, we, uh, that's another thing I always want to, to add when we talk about conspiracy theories or things like flat earth. I think that, uh, even if sometimes we just, uh, can't believe our eyes or ears when we hear it in the end, uh, it's a sign that we have at least some kind of freedom of thought <laughs> and it's, it's, uh, you know, yeah. So yeah, yeah, and I I think uh, something to end on is that I think most people that will, most people listening to this will believe in a conspiracy. They will probably say they're not conspiracy theorists, but they will believe in one conspiracy theory. But to them, that's it's not a conspiracy theory. It's yeah. just true, and that kind yeah. of links us back to to myth in general. That yeah. like a lot of people will there are myths but mm. not the one that they believe in the yes. one that they believe in now that's and again back to religion it's it's yeah. this one's real because i believe in it and i think yeah. that this one's real but all the other ones are conspiracy <laughs> theory and like that's a lot of people i think the i think the jfk one is probably the one that kind of cements it for most people it's like oh yeah there's all these conspiracy theories but jfk yeah he was probably shot by the government <laughs> so I, i'm not a conspiracy theorist because this one's so obvious that <laughs> That's probably what it that you know that that's what happened. So I don't believe in conspiracy theories, but this but. one this this one is true. Um, yes. So they wouldn't class themselves, and I, I think that's a a kind of fascinating way to wrap this whole yeah. episode yeah. up yeah. and and put it all together. Yep, I agree. Yeah, there we go. Let's yeah, let's jump over and uh, do a quick Q and A with. Have you got enough time? Maybe 10, 10 minutes? Yeah, 10 minutes are okay. It's okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll, do, we'll just do a quick Q&A. So again, if um, anybody listening to this, thank you for, for obviously listening to the show. If you do enjoy, please leave as a five-star rating, a positive review. And I, like I said, I, as, as I said at the start of the show, you can check out our Patreon. It's just Patreon forward slash Naughty Mythology podcast. It's £3 a month. You get a bonus episode every week. Sometimes they're, they're 10, 15 minutes. Sometimes they're half an hour, 45 minutes. Uh, but you get that extra episode where you can ask your questions to the guests or you can submit your questions ahead of time. And even if you don't get the chance to ask your own question, you there's a lot of good conversations that happen after because people sometimes are asking questions that I've missed. There's a lot of things that I I, I miss and, and people pick up on. So they are worth listening to and you get the whole back catalogue on there as well. So yeah, if you can, like I say, it helps us keep the show going and we we very much appreciate it. Uh, Jan, is there any way you want people to 
follow you, check your. I I I found with most scholars they're like, I yeah. you know what I don't have like a public persona. Yeah, I no. I mean, I have like like my personal uh, web page where you can find uh, you know info about me uh, and uh, and things that are that I'm connected to. So my teaching is, is there. My uh, <clears throat> yeah, uh, I'm. I also work as a psychotherapist. So uh, that, you know st stuff like that. And then I also from very early I develop my own. Uh, uh fantasy world which is called sirania sirania and uh, it, there there is a link to to this uh with you know interactive maps and stuff like that i have friends i develop it with and it's actually one of the one of the background reason why i studied all the old languages and uh religions because i really want a good research for uh, the creation of uh, our <laughs> fantasy world so wow <laughs> so oh, I will... where, where can people find that uh, it's uh, siranie.net. And I can send you the link if you, if you. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We will we'll put it in the show notes. Again, yeah. for people that, that don't know what show yeah. notes are, it's just a little bit of text. Yeah. You know, it's, the, it's just create creativity. It has no purpose other than, you know, uh, describing lands that are beyond our world. So. Oh, that's a, no, that's a lot of fun. And I imagine. A lot of people that listen to this will will enjoy that. Um, okay, yeah, thank you, thank you very much. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. I feel like we could have spoken for a lot longer, and hopefully, you can come back in the future and we have a little more time and we can explore mm -hmm. even further. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me here, and thank you Twice. all for listening. Yeah, <laughs> <The> second time. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you.